0: thinking politically of the last few months, few would have expected the Democratic Party to be openly flirting and using words like socialism. And yet at the same time, few would have expected the Republican Party to nominate a man who has never advocated for traditional marriage or for family or for community or for limited government. Internationally, you know, terrorist attacks, whether it's French priests, whether it's Belgian police those attacks are sadly becoming all too commonplace all too familiar in our own weekly rundown of news tensions escalating over the south china sea and arab spring as we just think of turkey that continues to devolve into something much more akin to an arab winter Domestically, the battlefield of the culture wars has moved from the bedroom into the bathrooms of our public schools, and racial tensions that many might have thought passed in the 60s simmering once again. I mean, who would have thought when you woke up this morning that you'd be coming to UBC Retro Sunday, gathering here with the barber who got a little excited about my hair? I told, I told myself actually not to say that. but uh, Listen, perhaps the only thing that feels constant to you is the fact that uh, Michael Phelps is again racing in the Olympics. All right, so what does the future hold? Right, what does the future hold? What does it hold not merely for sort of our nation, for politics, for economic, for societal structures, but I mean, what does it hold actually for you? What does it hold for you? Because I trust... Many of us this morning were come and will have come as Christians. And so how, I wonder, would you answer that question? How would you answer that question? I think many of us might look at the current events and whether it's the rise of terrorism or the increasing marginalization, criminalization, even extermination of Christians across the globe, and we're left scratching our heads, right? It's not supposed to be like this. We expected a world of sort of leave-it-to-beaver reruns, And we've got modern family. The frightening speed and the scope at which some of these transitions are taking place have led prominent thinkers like Rob Dreher to argue for the Benedict option, retreat, withdrawal out of society into our own Christian communities. I wonder what you think. What do you think? How as Christians should we make sense of the world around us? Should we be surprised by the things that we see. And what does that portend about our own future? Okay, so help us think through some of these very questions. We want to do what we've been doing this summer. We want to go back to our study in the parables. And we're going to be returning this morning back to that chapter that kicked off this study. Back to Matthew chapter 13. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there now. Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, we usually have them in the seat backs before you. But everything's different about this morning. Um, I do have one right here. If anyone needs one. Or if you, you're not going to raise your hand, I get that. Um, Maybe just look at a guest, all right, listen carefully um, as I read here in just a moment. Um, But before I do, I just want to highlight a few things about our parable. So this parable we're considering in Matthew 13, it's the parable of the weeds the parable of the weeds. It only occurs here in the book of Matthew, and other than the parable of the sower, again, which kicked off the series, it's the only parable to be given a title, as we'll see in a few minutes, by actually by the disciples. And it's one of the only parables to actually be given a thorough explanation by Jesus. And one of the things we've been going through our parable study is we've seen In that study, how context is key to our understanding of the parable. And in the early chapters of Matthew, Jesus' public ministry, right, it goes viral. Everybody's talking about this religious upstart, the miracles, the authority, the way this guy challenges the religious establishment. And yet the more they listen to him, as the chapters progress, the more, well, the more radical he sounds, He talks about bearing crosses. He talks about dividing families. And for some, this teaching is just too much. For others, they're starting to see, hey, this guy's running with the wrong crowds. He's running with tax collectors and Pharisees. Once eager followers are now regularly unfriending him on Facebook. He's losing, at one level, attention. Losing popularity, and the Pharisees seize the opportunity. And in chapter 12, they go toe to toe, blow to blow, so to speak, with Jesus over the understanding of the Sabbath and of the Old Testament. And at the end of that, they are conspiring to kill him. So, this darling, this Jewish darling, has become the dissident. And the disciples, they're confused, they're dumbfounded, they're not understanding what's happening. How, Jesus, can this be your plan? If this is the promised kingdom that you've been speaking of, why are we still under the heavy hand of Roman rule? Right? Why are our numbers dwindling? Why are you on the religious equivalent of the FBI's 10 most wanted list? Why is it happening? It's not what we expected. And so as we get to chapter 13, Jesus will give them seven different parables about the kingdom of heaven. He's responding to those underlying questions burning in the minds of the disciples. And so he gives them these parables, that parable of the sower. That's what opened up the study back in June. It's the parable about parables. And there, Jesus teaches the problem is not with The seed, the message of the gospel. The problem isn't with the one who sows, the message of the gospel. The problem is in the human heart, the various soils that are divided or hardened or half-hearted. That's where the problem lies. But he goes on and he tells six more parables in Matthew chapter 13. And the first three, beginning with the weeds, they're all agricultural in nature. So you've got the weeds and you have the mustard seed and then you have the leaven. And then you move on to sort of parables that are more sort of business-like, mercantile, like the parable of the net, for example, and the parable of the pearl, and the parable of the treasure. And all these parables are serving to reinforce one another. And so the parable of the weeds, the very first, is analogous to that parable of the net, the very last one. Both given interpretations by Jesus. Both talk about a great division of good and bad. Both speak of judgment. They're all hammering home Jesus's points in his teaching. And for those with ears to hear, what Jesus is doing is he's redefining the people of God and he's reorienting their hope. So he's redefining who are God's people and he's reorienting their hope. And so with that sort of his context, with background, let's pick up the parable of the weeds, Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, well, then do you want us to go out and to gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. All right, so notice what do we have? We have another parable about the kingdom of heaven. Notice that's how it opens up there in verse 24. It's teaching us something misunderstood by the disciples about God's rule and reign in Jesus Christ. And he says, in effect, that the kingdom of heaven is like a case of first century High stakes, industrial sabotage. That's what the parable is depicting. We've got a wealthy landowner. He's got servants. They plant his crop. But while those servants are asleep, his enemy comes stealthily under cover of darkness and sows weeds among the wheat of his field. And that word for weed is used of a particular kind of noxious plant. A plant that looks remarkably similar to wheat, but actually has a grain, it's got a grain that's poisonous. It's poisonous, and thus to harvest the wheat along with this particular kind of weed, well that would just render his whole crop commercially worthless, and of course would create a little bit of a public health hazard, because you can't have bread on the shelves that's laced with something like arsenic of the first century. So you've got a major problem here. And the servants are perplexed. They don't know how this has happened. But the master, right, he surveys the field. Perhaps he notices the patterns, notices that this this particular weed is not in some of the neighboring fields. And he realizes an enemy has done this. An enemy, he says in verse 28, has done this. Right? Industrial sabotage. And we know from Roman records, sadly, such things occurred in the Greco-Roman world. And so what's the solution? You've got no pesticides, no herbicides, you can't drop things by air. So the, the servants say, hey, do you want us to try to pull up the weeds? And yet the root systems, it appears, are so intertwined, so broadly dispersed are these weeds amongst the wheat that the master says, no, can't do it, can't afford to uproot them and also uproot the wheat as well. So he says, wait until the harvest, the reapers will then bind and burn the weeds, but they will gather the wheat into the barn. Okay, so Jesus tells this parable about a first century case of bioterrorism. He says it's about the kingdom of heaven. The disciples are genuinely perplexed, regularly perplexed. You'll often find this in the gospels. The disciples, Jesus' followers, are normally not expecting things that are about to come. They're puzzled. And so, Verse 36, if we jump down, we pick up there that he left the crowds, went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Explain to us the parable. And so he does in their presence, not before the whole group, but in their presence, he explains the parable. And he says this beginning in verse 37, he answers, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed, the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay, friends, we might have questions about the message right, about what he says. He's given us this glossary of terms. He doesn't define everything. Not every image in a parable is meant to depict something else, but he has given us quite a few images, and his overarching point is clear. I think it's simply this. He's saying to the disciples, expect opposition while you prepare for redemption. That's in effect the main point of the parable. He's saying, Expect opposition while you prepare for redemption. And that's really going to serve as our overarching point. All we're going to do in the remaining time is just reflect and meditate a little bit on some of the things we see here. Okay, so, disciples, Christians, applying to us, we are to expect opposition. But from whom? From whom should we expect the opposition? And if you know anything about the history of interpretation, many of you will know that this parable is often applied to Christian communities. It's applied to Christian communities. So I remember the first time I attended the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. I think it was back in 2002 in St. Louis and the sort of keynote address one night was by a famous Baptist evangelist, and he got up and he preached a sermon on the wheat and the tares. And the tares is just the way the King James Version spoke of the weeds. right? So the wheat and the tares, and he gets up and he preaches this sermon, and he preaches about the danger of being tares. And then, actually much to my surprise, he launches there at the Southern Baptist Convention into an altar call. And at the altar call, you have, I mean, you have an A convention of delegates, presumably your more spiritually minded delegates, and I didn't see that altar call coming. But I also didn't see coming what happened next, and that's that half the choir in their black sequin dresses got out and walked down to the front, and I was genuinely confused. I was trying to understand. Okay, the wheat and the tares, the tares are the sons of the evil one, the choir of the convention. I was genuinely thrown and confused, right? But that highlights, I think, often how Christians, some Christians have applied this passage to their church communities. And so they say, don't be tares, right? Beware of being tares, which is, of course, a fine thing. But I don't think that's actually what Jesus is meaning for us. The parable is not about the mixed nature of the church. It's not saying that you should expect opposition from one another, that you should expect that. It's not saying that we should ignore those living like weeds among us, that that God will judge them one day. It's not the sort of anti-church discipline parable of Jesus. No, Jesus says in verse 38, he says, the field is the world. The field is the world, not the church. Sadly, do Christians confront opposition from brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes, sadly they do. Is that what this parable is talking about? Not at all. No, the parable, it's not about pacifism. It's not about nonviolence. The disciples in Matthew 13 are asking this question. How can this be the kingdom of heaven, Jesus, if evil still exists? They're not understanding The Messiah was to come. He was to eradicate evil. He was to establish his rule and reign in righteousness. To which Jesus gives this parable saying, expect opposition while you prepare for redemption. In the last days, Christians and non-Christians they coexist. They live together. Like the wheat and the weeds outwardly. They may also look very similar. We all get up in the morning, we get dressed, we go to school we go to work, we drive in our cars, we listen to music, we have families, raise children. We all do those things. They often look, we look very similar. We look similar. Now, one day they won't. We won't coexist. But in this day, in these last days, Jesus is saying, you do. So don't be surprised when you confront opposition. So just speaking to my Christian friends, I wonder how How do you respond? How do you respond when confronted with opposition? Not the kind of opposition that comes from being proud or rude or sort of being generally seen as a jerk. Not talking about that kind of opposition. I'm talking about the kind of opposition that comes and arises from your own Christian convictions. How do you respond to that kind of opposition? I think the temptation can be to whine. About how the world isn't what it used to be. To kind to of whimper about how unfair things now seem. But friends, it's the world. It's the world. The world is no friend of Christ. The world conspired to crucify Christ. So what do you expect from your own engagements with the world? With this nation? with your local city council, when you meet them and they hear you're a Christian, are you anticipating them to roll out the red carpet, treat you like a celebrity? No, they're the world. They're going to get angry and they're going to call for security. We need to stop sounding quite so wounded when things don't go our way, whether it's at the ballot box or at some Supreme Court. That doesn't mean we don't live within our political systems to try and protect our freedom of speech and our right to gather together and to worship. We should do that. Of course we ought to do that. But we have to remember that our king, he was an outcast. He was a social pariah before he would ever be a conqueror. And we're merely being reintroduced into something Christians have known for centuries before us. And many Christians currently know very personally around the world. And that is to become a friend of God necessarily makes you an enemy of the world. But my Christian friend, just because you're an enemy of the world, that doesn't mean that you can therefore retreat from the world. So I mentioned the Benedict Option. I actually don't think the Benedict Option is available to us as Christians. Notice how the parable assumes that Christians and non-Christians live together. Lives interwoven with one another, such that to root up one would be to root up the other. So intertwined, so interlaced, coexisting side by side. I wonder if that describes your life. Does that depiction in any way describe your life? How are the lives of non-Christians interwoven into your own life? Are they ever at your dinner table? Are you ever at their birthday parties? Would they think to call you in a crisis did you think to invite any of them to your Friday night opening ceremony Olympic parties? I mean, just look at your phone and look at your favorites. Is there a single non-Christian on that list? Friends, if the answer to most of those questions is no, then recognize you've created for yourself a kingdom of heaven that Jesus just doesn't recognize. He doesn't recognize it. But friends, even as you reflect on that, just another observation to be made from the text is that while we face opposition in the world, we've got to remember who our true enemy is. It's not primarily the sons of the evil one, it's the evil one himself. It's the one who sowed the weeds in the field. Right, it's very much what Paul reminds us of in Ephesians 6:12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, our battle isn't primarily with our culture or with our non-Christian neighbor. It's with the one who stands behind them, behind them. And this knowledge ought to help us all love our enemies much better. Not that they don't act willfully. Of course, they do act willfully, but they don't act alone, They don't act alone. There is another power at work in the world. And notice how that power works. Just notice how that power works sowing weeds among wheat, right? Poisoning what is good. The devil always the destroyer, always the spoiler. He has no agenda other than opposition to God's agenda. He's like a politician without any policies other than to tear down his opponent through deception and lies. The devil offers nothing constructive. He offers no compelling vision for humanity. The devil doesn't create. He can't create. All he can do is corrupt. It's all he can do. He can't create. He only corrupts. I'm waking this morning. I'm reflecting on that. And I get the call about mold. And I'm like, yep. Can't create, only corrupt. We meet in here. But just know that anytime you choose sin, anytime any of us choose sin, you choose sin, you are actually choosing Him. You're choosing to align with this one. You're choosing to... Follow his policies. You're choosing to take what God has given and good, and you're choosing to corrupt that. You think you're perhaps improving upon it, when in reality, you're destroying it. You don't liberate yourself, be it in your sexual desires or your ambitions. All you do is ruin yourself when you follow him. You believe the lie that this thing, whatever it is, will make you happy, when in fact, we so clearly see it's only sealing your misery. So know this morning, if you reject Jesus, you are in league with this one, his enemy, his opposition, the one who sows the weeds in the field. We think we reject Jesus, and now we get to live our lives our own way, which is exactly what the devil wants us to think, right? We get to live our own way, pursue things our own course, the same lie he told to Adam and Eve in the garden, and if that's you, you've been duped the same way they were believing that if we walk away from God, we have the freedom to pursue life as we wish. We kind of treat life like it's a choose-your-own-adventure novel. We just get to write the ending. We get to create our own separate story, our own happily ever after. But Jesus in verse 31, notice in verse 41, he refers to the world as his kingdom. It's his kingdom. It's not ours. It's his. We don't actually own the world. We're not in control of the world. We're not making the judgments against God. He's making them against us. C.S. Lewis once famously wrote, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. That was the ancient man, but for the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, then he is ready to listen to it. And the trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. But friends, it's Christ's world. It's his kingdom He sits in judgment over us. We may think we're writing our own Choose Our Adventure novels, but recognize that novel we think we're writing has one of two endings. All of our choices inexorably leading either to to a barn where we are protected or to that furnace where the weeds are bound and burned. Those are the two ends of the story. And friends, Jesus could not be more clear that one day he will come and he will judge the earth. He will come and he will judge the earth. You know, we don't like to think of Jesus as teaching such things. But that, that whole image of reaping throughout the Old Testament with a scythe in hand, you know, that is, that is an image of judgment. And we know that image, even sort of the grim reaper. We know that image popularly. That word for bind, the weeds being bound before they're burned. That word for bind, it was used of Jesus And the judgment that the world would place upon him as they bound him. It's the same word that Paul, when he was Saul, used to use of how he was binding Christians to persecute them and have them executed. Even that expression, son of man, that Jesus uses in reference to himself, a title he uses over 80 times in the Gospels. It harkens back to what was read earlier in the service from Daniel 7. The Son of Man, a victorious figure enthroned by God to rule over the nations. How? In judgment. In judgment. Jesus is leaving no doubt. God will one day come and he will judge the earth. What does that judgment look like? We're not given a lot of details. Now, I know Tim LaHaye died about two weeks ago. And many of you will know him as the sort of famous author who wrote that whole Left Behind series. 65 million books sold, I think seven number one New York Times bestseller lists. And he has kind of left behind an apocalyptic vision of what that day will be like. But just know that that vision that he presents is something far more akin to science fiction and fantasy and horror than it actually is history and theology. Contrary to what LaHaye would have you believe. The Bible is actually rather short on the details, but it's not short on one thing. That it is agonizing and it is unbearable. Verse 42, judgment will come in a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, highlighting the utter despair and hopelessness, gnashing of teeth, the aggravation, the agony, the suffering. The image of a fiery furnace is not that we'll be consumed and obliterated, but that we'll be condemned. Jesus is teaching us about hell. He's warning us and recognize that I use that word hell. Hell's not something that Dante created that could be imposed sort of and to terrorize some ignorant humanity. No, Jesus speaks of it plainly and clearly. And it's not because God is vindictive or spiteful. It's not because he gets off on harming others. No, it's because God is good. He's good. And like any good judge, he's not going to turn a blind eye to sin. He simply will not do it. Any judge who would do that, you would not call good. And God is a just God. And he's a good God. And none of us can escape him. It's his kingdom. Even hell. Even hell. It's not the absence of God. It is the presence of God and his just, righteous wrath against sin. You can't escape him. You can't run from him. But Jesus, throughout the Gospels, is saying you can embrace him. You can embrace him. You can trust Christ because his patience is. His patience here, his patience in these last days as the wheat and the weeds grow together, his patience is for deliverance. It's for deliverance. Even that image, the Son of Man, that image of a a righteous one coming in judgment, it's used another way in the Old Testament. It's used of one who is frail and humble and who will suffer. It's a passage not without hope. The King of glory, this Son of Man, is also the suffering servant. He's the one who's looked upon the condemnation of the sinful world, and he's taken pity. He's shown mercy. Our plight is actually far worse than we thought. It's far worse than we thought. but, But his provision in Christ is far better than we could have possibly imagined. For there on the cross, Jesus didn't just make a way. He didn't just say, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, follow me and subject yourself to endless pain and punishment and torture. No, he bore it for us. He suffered in our place. The cross was not Jesus being outfoxed by all the powers that be. It was Jesus willingly subjecting himself to humiliation, to suffering, and to the judgment we deserve so that we might receive the righteousness that he deserves. That's what the cross is all about. It's Jesus bearing the righteous judgment we deserve so that the righteousness that is his, we get that. That's what becomes ours in the gospel. So if you've come this morning, you wouldn't identify yourself as a Christian. Jesus is actually pressing you. He's saying, don't ignore what I say. Don't walk away and say, I'm a good teacher. Listen, do you have ears to hear? are you hearing what I'm saying? Will you abandon your sins? Will you embrace Christ? Right? Satan comes to destroy. Christ comes to save. It's that simple. Will you not be saved? I mean, Jesus, he's not a cruel master. He's not a cosmic killjoy. He's a compassionate savior. He comes around with arms that are long and strong and eager to save. And there are no better arms that you could rest in today than to rest in those arms. He will come back in judgment, but He first comes as a Savior. He first comes to save His people from their sins. And all that are saved, verse 43, notice how it ends. Focus on judgment. Focus on opposition in these days, yes, but not without hope. Verse 43, for the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And we're not talking Edward Cullen, Twilight, sparklies, Right? This is not Hollywood glitter. Not that kind of shining. This is the brilliant radiance of God himself. That's the kind of shining that will mark... God's people in their kingdom. This language of shining like the sun, it's the same language used of Jesus in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration. And just there as Jesus shines, he's saying, so too will you. As I am, so too will you be. The righteousness of Christ, the purity, the freedom from sin, that kind of shining, that's the shining that will mark God's people. And on that day, on that day, every bit of suffering, every pang and bitter woe that Jesus suffered that we sang about, that we know in this life, all of that, all of it will be so worth it, but for a second of that glory. And it's ours for eternity to be known like that in Christ. It's beautiful. The Bible writers, they struggle to describe it. They largely don't describe it. It's like Staring at the sun, how do you describe it? You can't describe it. It is what it is, and it is glorious, and it will be worthwhile. That's the hope that he's holding out, reminding us of in the midst of that present opposition. You have a sure and certain future hope. Because everything in life feels, right? It feels so uncertain. There's so much of your future you don't know. I don't know. We don't know what our health holds. We don't know where we will be a year from now. Recognize I wasn't even here a year ago. We don't know where this political season is headed. We don't know where our nation is headed. We don't know if our most decorated Olympian is going to walk away at the end of these next two weeks with more bling. We don't know if we're going to be back there next week. Like lots of things. So many things we don't know. But Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you got to know this. Expect opposition. Expect opposition. And yet be no less certain of the truth that one day that opposition is going to give way to full and complete redemption. Alright, so how are you, how are you preparing? How are you preparing for that day? Don't walk away without settling that question in your own mind. How are you preparing for that day? All right, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for these studies and the parables. They've pricked us and unsettled us. Jesus does that so well, exposing self-righteousness, being honest and blunt about things that often we don't want to think about, we don't want to speak of. But God, we pray that we would be those who have ears to hear understanding that the defining characteristic of what it means to be a follower of God is to hear from your word and to respond in obedience and in love. And God, we pray that that would increasingly mark us humble as we work through and as we suffer under opposition and yet joyful as we long and as we await for what's to come. Lord, make that, make us A people like that. Make us a people who have that hope, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.